say c'est bon. Welcome to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm your host, Paige Donner. For the next half hour, I'll be presenting to you news, happenings, and personalities from Paris's extraordinary culinary world. So sit back and get ready to enjoy a full half hour of Paris Good Food and Wine. Like those French people do. Because it's all so good. In this episode of Paris Good Food and Wine, you'll be hearing from one of Burgundy's most knowledgeable proponents of their UNESCO World Heritage Candidacy, which at present is being considered for inclusion as a world cultural site of outstanding universal value. Next, Emily Dilling, our market report regular contributor, stops by the World Radio Paris studios to chat with us a bit and tell us about her upcoming book release. Then, Gabrielle Mondesir shares her interview with the former head chef of Paris's Le Cordon Bleu Cooking School, where she works as a translator. And finally, Alec Lebrano brings us his newest bistro pick, which happens to be also a hot new Paris address that has several of his French restaurant critic peers a buzz these days too. No matter, no matter what color, I, you're still my brother. I say no matter, no matter what color, now, now, you're still my brother. Everybody wants to live together. Why can't we live together? Everybody wants to live together. Why can't we live together? The climas of Burgundy are being put forth for inclusion on UNESCO's World Heritage List as a cultural site. But whoa, let's back up there a moment in case some of that lingo isn't all that familiar. First of all, World Heritage is a UNESCO-led program aimed at encouraging protection and conservation of cultural sites, natural sites, and mixed sites. Klima is a uniquely Burgundian term that refers to the mosaic patchwork of vineyards that make up a significant area of its terroir. For 2,000 years, Burgundy's vineyards have been built on a model of viticulture oriented towards revealing its terroir identity or footprint particular to each climat. The 60 kilometers that run from Dijon to Saint-Denis, which is just south of Beaune, include 1,247 climats that form a mosaic of unique crews. Some of the world's most famous wines come from this unique landscape. Champertin, Montrachet, Corton, Musinier, and of course, Clos de Vougeot and Romani Conti. Each of these climas has its own flavor, history, and place in the hierarchy, and they interlock like a giant jigsaw puzzle. Guillaume d'Angerville, 
the deputy president of the Association for the Inscription of the Climas of Burgundy on UNESCO's World Heritage List, explains here this category choice of cultural site further. Here at the Collège de, de Bernadins in uh, Paris's uh, heart of the Latin Quarter, sitting with the uh, deputy president, Guillaume Dangerville, Monsieur Guillaume Dangerville. And uh, he's the deputy president of the Climat de Bourgogne. And uh, what's so relevant about this is that it's being decided uh, right now uh, their World Heritage, their UNESCO World Heritage candidacy. So when your team put forward the dossier to the UNESCO, you chose the category of culture. Can you please explain why um, you chose that category and what the relevance of that is? Sure, thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, we, we decided to apply as a cultural site, uh, and the reason for this is because we want to emphasize that Burgundy is all about interaction between nature and man. Uh, you know, it's not just the landscape. The landscape is obviously very beautiful in Burgundy, but the history of, of Burgundy and the winemaking model that we have built there is the story of man interacting with that nature. Um, nowhere else in the world has man been so precise in identifying an agricultural production, a wine, to the place where the wine is actually produced. So what we are talking about, the Climat de Bourgogne, as you mentioned them, what we are talking about here is a mosaic of very tiny plots of land, parcels of land, which are very clearly identified and named and have been named for a thousand years for most of them. And today, each of those specific plots of land produces a specific wine that bears a specific name. And this is what we are trying to share with the world. We're not trying to share just our landscape, which is beautiful, but we need to share also what is behind this, the cultural uh, aspect of it, the Burgundy culture, uh, 2,000 years of history, because the first vineyard was found in our area, uh, dated 100 years post-Jesus Christ, so almost 2,000 years ago. And this iterative process that took over, you know, over 1,000 years for sure to identify each piece of land with a specific wine. So not just the landscape, but the culture behind the landscape and interaction between man, man and nature. Outstanding universal value. To be included on the World Heritage List, the candidate site must demonstrate its outstanding universal value. In other words, it must prove that it can be regarded as such an important cultural site that its influence transcends national borders, spans generations, and therefore deserves recognition on an international level. Burgundy's climas are a unique cultural site where the best example of terroir-based viticulture can be found, the combined works of man and nature. The climas are a living illustration of how history and human endeavor to express identity and diversity have been etched in the stone and in the soil. The climas of Burgundy are a vital repository of expertise and tradition, one that is unique, but also one whose future could be threatened by current trends towards globalization and standardization of practices and tastes. 
the inscription of Burgundy's climaz will result not only in an official global recognition of their unique character, but will also provide the means to protect the very culture and historic traditions upon which they still rest. Here, Guillaume d'Angerville relates why inclusion on the UNESCO World Heritage List is so significant and valuable for the entire world. Once again, your team, the Climat Bourgogne, you arranged this fabulous conference that's been taking place the last two days here, the heritage value of terroir-based economies as model of human development. And it's become very clear um, what a UNESCO World Heritage designation can bring to a territory such as a region such as Burgundy or the Colombian um, coffee growers region, um, the Alang Alang region in the Comores. But what does the designation of World Heritage Cultural Site, World Cultural Heritage Site, UNESCO? It, it, when it's designated to, to Burgundy, what does it bring to the world? Well, you know, the, the whole purpose of the World Heritage List is, is to protect sites, the destruction of which would be a loss to humanity. Okay? The outstanding universal value, that's the definition by UNESCO of outstanding universal value. If that piece of land, Burgundy, was to be damaged or destroyed, it would be a loss to humanity as a whole. And the whole purpose of our, of our you know, long search towards the World Heritage List is precisely because we Burgundians would like to share with the rest of the world not only our landscape, like I said earlier, but also our culture, our history, our winemaking model. We're very keen on that and we want, because perhaps also because wine is such a convivial product, uh, we would like to share this with the rest of the world. And it's, very, it's a very complex region to understand because of those specificities, the very small uh, pieces of land that produce separate wines. So it needs work to understand. And we want um, the World Heritage List to help us uh, share that with the rest of the world. And of course, as part of our commitment to UNESCO, we will indeed uh, make sure that, that we uh, share our knowledge with, with foreigners, with, with tourists that will come to the region. And we intend to organize special areas, places, uh, buildings where people will, will be taught how Burgundy works and how the winemaking model of Burgundy can be applied. And that's what we intend to share with the rest of the world. And of course, by the way, you should know that Burgundy today already is a winemaking model for other wine regions of the world. And today the purpose of this symposium is also to say that not only is, is wine uh, a, a product that typically can be terroir-based, but also there are other uh, agricultural productions that share the same challenges and the same successes and also the same threats uh, as Burgundy does. And we, we, you, you, you chose uh, to speak about coffee, there's rice, there's tea, uh, uh, all of those uh, terroir-based agricultural productions share the same challenges and uh, successes. And, final note, interestingly, not only is Burgundy one of the finest wine-producing regions in the world, it also ranks in the top 20 world tourism destinations.
with us in studio is Emily Dilling. So today we have the enthusiastic participation, as usual, because that's what she brings to all of her endeavors when it comes to food and gastronomy here in Paris. We have Emily Dilling in the studio here at the American University of Paris, our World Radio Paris studios here. And um, she's our market report journalist, our market report contributor for Paris Good Food and Wine. And so... We want to know a little bit more about you. <laughs> Actually, I'm sure our listeners do. So, Emily, as our Paris Good Food and Wine Market Report contributor, who is the person behind Emily? When did you come to Paris? When did you come to France? And what brought you here? Well, um, I've been in Paris for nine years now, which surprises even me. Um, and like most people I talk to, it's kind of... Uh, not intended to be this long of a stay. Um, I taught English as an English assistant in the countryside in France in a small town called Mayenne for almost a year. Um, went back to the U.S. and found myself missing France a lot. So um, I decided I needed to come back. I wanted to improve my French. Um, I wasn't ready with to finish uh, my experience abroad. So I uh, so I bought a ticket to Paris and said I would stay as long as I could, and that was nine years ago, and I'm still here. So, That's fabulous. You must have been uh, a French in a previous life or something. Something like that, because I feel at home here, definitely. And since you lived here, you launched a very successful blog called uh, Perry, as an American would pronounce it, Paris, Paysan, but Perry Paysan. And that's all about like the fresh local markets, and which is what made you the perfect candidate for the for the reporter for this segment. How did that come about? Well, it's actually um, the blog was actually inspired by an experience in the U.S. I went on a trip to visit my family. I'm from California originally, studied in the Northwest, so I went back to the to do a tour of the West Coast to visit friends and family uh, in 2010. And a lot of my friends and family were were and are very passionate about food. And through their eyes and their experiences and their um, kindness in taking me around to markets and different um, events that they're and groups that they're involved in, I saw I had a window into the world of food activism in the U.S. And uh, I was mostly excited about the farmers markets there and how even small towns have farmers markets where local producers come together and sell locally grown uh, produce, fruits, and also artisanally made products. Um, and I realized that I had sort of this idée reçue or sort of um, this image of Paris markets being farmers markets. And I realized that that was totally not true. Coming back to Paris, I realized um, the markets, even though they've kept sort of the same structure and infrastructure and are amazing resources for, for Parisians because there's so many of them um, and they happen so often, there were fewer and fewer actual farmers at the markets. So Paris Paysan started as as just a simple uh, way of documenting my my visits and my explorations in different Paris markets, looking for looking for local farmers and hoping that writing about them would inspire other Parisians to go and support them by shopping at their stands in their neighborhood market. 
Bravo. And L'Express is one of the most widely read uh, magazines here in France. And they tagged your blog as one of the best uh, uh, food blogs. When did that happen? And was that just out of the blue? It was. It was um, 2013. They chose a few different... Actually, it was Anglophone bloggers who have different um, blogs on on different subjects. Uh, And I was really happy to be included in a group of women... Uh, that I respect very much, and I, I'm, I'm fans of their blogs, so that was quite an honor. Uh, and yeah, it did happen out of the blue. Um, Paris Paisan was named the le blog le plus gourmand, uh, so the most tasty blog, I guess you could say. Uh, and so, yeah, quite an honor, and I really appreciated, actually, the journalist, Simona, who who put that list together, is very engaged in, um, in the food movement in Paris and the Eat Local, Eat Organic movement. So um, so I appreciate that she sought out the blog and decided to include uh, Paris Paysan, which is a little bit different from some of the other blogs about food in Paris, I think, because it's not super focused on restaurant reviews or or going out in Paris. It's more really um, buying locally grown vegetables and, with simple recipes on how to prepare them at home. And the recipes are often inspired by the farmers and not not particularly trendy or following in any sort of diet that's in fashion now, but more just how to use, how to simply prepare uh, locally grown produce. So which leads us to the the heart of the of the interview now because you have this great project that's just getting launched. You have a, a book coming out. I do, I do. I'm really excited about the book. Um, so the book is going to be an extension of my blog with a focus on Paris uh, markets and where to find farmers there. Profiles on the different independent producers and farmers that I've that I've encountered in my explorations. Uh, but it's also the scope is kind of expanded to include how to eat local and I'll say naturally and, and maybe organically as well in Paris. So that includes, uh, for example, locally brewed beer. There's a huge boom in, um, in microbrewing in Paris and around Paris. So um, you can buy beer that's brewed in Paris or, you know, in the, in the very close suburbs of Paris. Uh, locally roasted coffee. There's a ton of coffee shops that are roasting their own beans, um, doing craft roasting, uh, a focus on natural wine and the different producers of uh, natural wine in France and where to find their outstanding bottles um, in different bars and restaurants in Paris, and also restaurants that um, really uh, dedicate themselves to locally sourcing ingredients and working with independent farmers. So that's there's kind of an aspect of a, of a guide and where to find these amazing products and support these amazing businesses, as well as a component that includes recipes that are inspired from these people and places. Fantastic. Congratulations on that, Emily. Thanks, Paige. When do you think we can uh, look look for that on online or in the bookstores? So I just finished writing it. So the ink is still a little wet on the manuscript, but um, the expected publication date is autumn 2015. Wow. Wonderful. Okay. All right. Well, we'll be looking for that for sure. And we'll also be listening in for your upcoming episodes of The Market Report. Great. Thanks so much, Paige. Stay tuned to hear an interview with an accomplished chef, from Le Cordon Bleu Cooking School. In 2015, Le Cordon Bleu turns 120 years old. Over the course of its history, thanks in part to alumni like Julia Child and Giada De Laurentiis, it has built a reputation that makes it practically synonymous with culinary school in the eyes of many. Chances are, you know someone whose dream is to attend Le Cordon Bleu. Recently, I sat down with the head chef of Le Cordon Bleu's Paris school, Chef Marc saint 
to talk about why French technique is so universal in professional kitchens, about how in recent years food has come to the forefront of popular culture, and about the school itself. In terms of technique, Chef Sanger cites French cuisine's precise vocabulary as one of the advantages that facilitates attention to detail in professional kitchens. So I think the first reason that the French technique is the most important is because there are no other words to translate these different positions or different cuts and so on in a kitchen. For example, would you know what a chef means when he says he needs to prepare his mise en place? So a mise en place, there's no other word than prep work or whatever, but again a mise en place is a general idea of what has to be done in advance in order to have a correct service. Or how about the difference between a brunoise and a mirepoix? Again, the names don't exist in other languages. A brunoise is our small dice. You know, small dice can be of any size, but a brunoise is a precise size between three and five millimeters square. And like a mirepoix is the same thing, except for it's a little over one centimeter. So again, everything is used on, I would say, a scale of importance, and the technique in French cuisine is very important. Outside of the professional kitchen, in recent years, food has exploded to the forefront of popular culture. People are more conscious now about the importance of things like organic vegetables, which they call bio or bio in French. The chef says that in France, people are now looking for quality products that previously were almost exclusively reserved for high-end restaurants, and learning how to prepare them in a way that respects the product. I think the basic is the knowledge of good products. That's the real big change that we see. People are really looking for either, I would say, uh, bio vegetables, which has become more of a tendency. But again, they're looking for taste. They're looking for the taste that they perhaps have already had or have in their memory when they were children. In regards to professional training at Le Cordon Bleu, the Paris School has a very international student body, with students from China, Canada, Brazil, the USA, Korea, the list goes on. About the diversity of the student body, the chef says, uh, the, the, the population here in Paris is, uh, of course, international. Uh, why is it that international, considering now we're up to about 55% of Asian uh, population? The American students up until a couple of years ago were still number one. That's kind of lowered. But uh, I think also the attraction is Paris, meaning, you know, gay Paris still exists. But they do have the, I would say, the reference, which is in Paris. So French cuisine in Paris seems logical. And when asked about Le Cordon Bleu's international reputation, the chef brings up a bit of French vocabulary. Être un cordon bleu. To be a cordon bleu. I think uh, the idea of the cordon bleu, uh, you just have to keep in mind it has become now a noun because when somebody cooks well, they call them a cordon bleu. I think that is sufficient to justify the fact that the school has a renown and is perpetually moving, trying to keep up with the tendencies and trying to keep up the excellency. That concludes our interview with Chef Saint-Ger. This has been Gabrielle Mondesir reporting for Paris Good Food and Wine. Thanks for listening. Alec Lebrano is up next. He's the author of Hungry for Paris, a dining guide to eating out in the city.
You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm Paige Donner, host and producer of the show. You promised to talk to us about the hot new bistro in the 12th. And actually, I'm really eager to hear about this because a lot of the the French, um, the big French food writers are already starting to, are, have already written actually about this place. So what's the big buzz about La Marante? La Marante, it's a terrific new bistro that I'd say right away is open on, on, on the weekend. A lot of the bistros are not open on the weekend. And there are a lot of reasons that it's interesting. Christophe Philippe, the chef, um, had a very successful restaurant called Chez Christophe in the Latin Quarter for a long time. And now he's moved to the right bank, um, to the 12th arrondissement, into a a sort of a retro former cafe-style place. Um, And he's cooking really fantastic old-fashioned bistro food. And this fascinates me because a lot of the young chefs... Um, knock themselves out trying to be creative and inventing new things. Christophe's pleasure is in doing the old traditional dishes beautifully, and that's what he does. I mean, it's a his cooking is very simple. His pride is in sourcing the food incredibly well. There's a beautiful, beautiful wine list, very recently priced as well. But it's real bistro cooking. I mean, really, really good market-driven bistro cooking. Um, so for, for those of us not savvy on, you know, what traditional bistro fare is in, in Paris, say we're, we're fresh off the boat or off the plane, what are some of those dishes? Well, for example, there's a, a really be- beautifully made terrine. Um, a terrine, for anybody who might not know it, is uh, ground. It can be chicken livers. It can be different types of meat. And it's baked in a, in a dish, which is also called a terrine. Um, that's a great bistro classic. And Christophe does a beautiful job with that. He also does things like, you know, oeuf en murette, which is a famous Burgundian dish, eggs and uh, poached eggs and red wine sauce with bacon and mushrooms. Incredibly delicious dish. And then in the main, the main courses, there are, you know, there are lots of things. He does a lot of grilled, grilled dishes. I mean, there's a beautiful roast chicken. There's a, one of the best fillet of sole that I've ever seen anywhere in Paris. The garnishes are simple. He does one of the best chocolate mousses that I've ever had in Paris. Um, it's a very, very good restaurant, and I would highly recommend it for a Sunday night because a lot of people visiting the city or who live in the city you know, would like to have a nice bistro meal on a Sunday night, but the pickings are pretty slim. And so they're this all is closed. Really good. They're all closed. On some, almost all of them are closed on Sunday nights. So uh, this charming restaurant with a, uh, a witty, clever... So, sommelier slash waiter who speaks perfect English and who does have a very interesting wine list. It's a really fun place for a meal. And uh, I went on a Sunday night. It was very crowded. So if you are interested in going, be sure to make a reservation. They take reservations? They do, absolutely. Oh, good. So what kind of a price range do we need to budget for? This is about, um, I'd say, 35, 35 euros a head, about 34 pounds. It's very, very good value for the money. And this is this is something else that's been nice in Paris this spring. I mean, aside from the improved exchange rate for, for people who are paid in dollars, I travel a lot. And I've been really impressed in recent dining in Paris by what good value for money there is in this city compared to other large Western cities, notably New York and London. Oh, that's a nice, that's a nice kudos for Paris to hear. Um, do you want to you do a rating on this? 
Um, I, I would give this restaurant, I think Christophe is going to get even better as time goes by. It's a, it's a solid B plus and a B plus for anyone who's not familiar, I just will remind you again, our rating system runs from A to F. Uh, it's based on um, American school grades. A B plus means solidly very good. And I would give it a B plus. Thank you so much, Alec. And you're welcome, Paige. A special thank you to our technical producer, David Blanc, and our contributors, Emily Dilling, Alec Lebrano, and Gabriel Mondesir. Also, thanks to our WRP in-studio technician interns. Paris Good Food and Wine is brought to you in part by the generous support of FUSAC, Paris's English-language website and community resource since 1988. Visit www.fusac.fr Thanks for joining us for this half hour of Paris Good Food and Wine. Myself, Paige Donner, and the rest of the team look forward to seeing you again here for the next episode of Paris Good Food and Wine. Because it's so, so good Voilà. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.